Jason Lewis is an American politician who served in Congress as the representative for Minnesota's 2nd Congressional District and is the author of Party Animal, The Truth About President Trump, Power Politics, and the Partisan Press. This is Jason Lewis. I'm Duncan Gammy. You're listening to Duck Tank. All right. Uh, I'm here with Jason Lewis. Uh, sir, thank you very much for joining me today. You bet. I am here at the lake and casual attire, as you can see, ensconced in my little office. Uh, but um, good to be with you, my friend. Excellent. Uh, so you have written, uh, you're a former congressman, uh, and you've written a book recently called uh, Party Animal, The Truth About President Trump, Power Politics, and the Partisan Press. Uh, I, I was thinking, because I, I haven't seen you on, on MSNBC yet, uh, I, I imagine there's no stories about uh, Trump trying to choke a limo driver. So if, uh, this should pretty much do any appearances on MSNBC, CNN, The Times, The Washington Post. I think we're pretty much done with these folks after this book. You bet. I devote a couple of chapters in, into, quite frankly, Duncan, just how corrupt they've become. Yeah. And, and so I'm curious what, uh, you know, you've had a, a career in politics, career in, in talk radio. What, what made you want to sit down and, and write a book? Right. So we all have our predispositions, our, our, um, our feelings of how things really are in Washington and the swamp has commentators before we get there. Um, but unfortunately, when I got there, I found it worse than I could possibly imagine. And at that point, you know, it's the old adage, when you go to Washington, you're elected to Congress, you look around the room and you see all these powerful people and you think, oh, I'm not certain I belong there. Then after a few months, you look around the same room and you say, I'm not certain they belong there. Yeah. Uh, it, it's that sort of realization that, that sunk in. So it was worse than I thought. Uh, and I thought, you know what, I've got to document this because I, I got the hunch that CNN would not. And I was right. Um, everything you, you read about in CNN, another story from the book, we'd have Tuesday morning conference calls or conference meetings in the basement of the Capitol as the majority party. And literally, they'd go on for an hour, hour and a half, uh, nine o'clock on Tuesday mornings. We do, you know, get back there Monday night for vote series. And then Tuesday mornings, the caucus gets together and tries to formulate strategy. Before the meeting was done, I'd be getting tweets on what was said a half an hour ago, leaked to the press, the press reporting it, and it was wrong. Hmm. And I'd walk out of the meeting and somebody from the media would say, well, what do you think about so-and-so's comments in the meeting? That wasn't the same meeting I was at. So you've got this system of leaks and this system of, of swamp corruption that I found to be worse than I thought. So I started documenting it. And this goes back to 16 during the campaign and 17, 18 in office. And then during my Senate run when Minnesota was imploding in 2020. And after it was all said and done, after the Senate run was over and I was pretty much done with, with politics, I, I think, <laughs> um, I thought, I got to get this down. I got to let people know the truth about the Russian collusion, what I saw in the, uh, when I went to look at the intelligence versus what the media re was reporting and all of that. And so I wrote it down and I found myself sitting there in, in a Northwoods cabin in the middle of a Minnesota winter with this pile of stuff. And I've got to make, put this in readable fashion. So it took me about a year and a half to do it and finally got the manuscript done. And that's how Party Animal, the truth about President Trump and power politics and the partisan press came about. It's really a documentation of what you're not being told. And, and you know what's interesting when you talk about the media? It seems like there was a moment, uh, maybe when Trump got the nomination, where up to that point, the media had been critical of him. But they also 
they, they did help in some ways fuel his rise where they would have, you know, I think it was on CNN, there was an image of right. just an empty podium and stuff like that. And I think on a certain level, they either felt guilty or they felt like now it was their job, not just to report things, but to take this guy down. And, it, it, you know, I would- There's no question that he yeah. was the only president in my memory that had zero honeymoon period, not one. And I think it came about um, primarily as I write in the book, um, not because of his idiosyncrasies. He was certainly um, the most out of the box president we've ever had to be sure. Um, but because of the policies, once Trump started to enact policies, and I, I say in the first chapter of the book, the Rose Garden, once we signed the repeal of Obamacare, that we took two votes in the House to get through, and we finally got it through. Once we, they saw that we did energy deregulation, we were energy independent, we were going to do tax reform. We did 16 congressional review authorizations, repealing regulations in six months. Previous Congress has only done one. I think the media realized this guy could be a clear and present danger. To, um, to the status quo, to the swamp, and certainly to Democrats. Now, I do think that it's ironic that for years and years, we were told by the media, Republicans shouldn't be so rigid with Bushes and, and, and even Reagan, to be sure. The Bushes were really quite moderate. Um, but they need someone that maybe wasn't a lifelong Republican, maybe wasn't wedded into the social issues, maybe was seen as a deal maker. If that was what precipitated the change from, well, this could be one of those Republicans that isn't cast in Republican mold that could reach across the aisle, do deals and all that, um, to let's take this guy down, starting with the DOJ and the bowels of the bureaucracy. And I think it was the policy. I don't think it was Trump's idiosyncrasies. You think so? Because I think on a lot of levels, if he had just been a little bit more polite and had watched his mouth on certain things, that I think that the media would have been forced on a certain level to look at him at least as more, uh, you know, presidential. They do that right up until they become a threat. So now John McCain, as I write in the book, he undercut that health care reform bill and the Senate said he would vote for it and then changed his mind. Um, then you have Mitt Romney, who's now the, the media's darling because he's such an advocate of never Trumpism. Liz Cheney. What did they say about those two when they were running for president? Right. So it, it doesn't matter really um, how you behave. Now, you're right about one thing. Trump was different in, in that he wasn't going to take any crap from anybody. He was a New York, brash New York developer. That's what he was brought up in. I'll stick my hand out. I'll throw out the olive branch. But if you slap my hand, I'm slapping you back. That was com completely different. And it gave the media some ammunition, to be sure. But they would have opposed him just as vigorously as they opposed all the other moderates. And think about this for a second. And you know your history. The most moderate president, um, frankly, until the Bushes came along in my lifetime as a Republican was Richard Nixon. Hired Daniel Patrick Moynihan, cared about the inner cities developed the EPA, in fact, created the EPA, right? Um, was very moderate in some of his judicial appointments. Did that save him? Right. Not, not in a New York minute. So the whole argument that Trump was too crass, um, I don't think was the reason. The reason was Trump was appointing originalists to the court. He was, in, he was uh, going after the military industrial complex, as Eisenhower described it. Um, and, and, and that doesn't mean you, you, you don't 
uphold our strategic alliances. Trump did that with the Abraham Accords and all those sorts of things. But it does mean that you question whether or not um, we belong in Eastern Europe when China's our biggest threat. And those sorts of things, the, 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 the parties playing between the 40-yard lines really don't like. They certainly didn't like the plans to build the border wall, which I was a strong advocate of. Because that, that is going to change the demographics of the nation. You know, for years and years, liberals called it the replacement theory. When Trump did, or other pundits, oh my gosh, that's, that's xenophobic and racist. Well, you're the ones that described it as a replacement theory when you said the demographics were changing due to immigration. So all of those things um, were actually progress if you're a conservative, America first conservative. And that's one thing the media could not tolerate. Yeah, it's... It it's interesting. A bunch of things in there that I wanted to ask you about. Uh, <laughs> one of the things uh, that you describe, uh, sort of the phenomenons you describe in this book, Party Animal, uh, is this Republican infighting. And you mentioned the fact that John McCain had said he was going to uh, vote for the repeal of Obamacare, right. wound up voting against it. What's the inside story on that? Inside story on that was that, that you got to understand, Democrats circle the wagons. I mean, look, at you got a... a, a totally incompetent president who's clearly subject to the 25th amendment if anybody was joe biden is just not there he's not the man he used to be i don't know if it's dementia it could just could be plain old senility that we're all going to face someday but clearly when jamie raskin proposed holding trump to the 25th amendment on mental mental competence but nobody's talking about joe biden it does show you the the double standard but the Democrats are still circling the wagon around Biden. Now there's talk about, you know, they've got to get rid of him before. But the fact is they defended him tooth and nail. Republicans circle the wagons and shoot inward, Duncan. That's what they do. And no, nowhere was that more evident than the American Health Care Act. We ran, all of us ran in 2016 on repealing Obamacare. In Minnesota, my home state, premiums had quadrupled. 100,000 people were dropped from the exchanges because insurance companies were dropping. A number of states, a majority of counties in the country had one insurer on the Obamacare exchanges. People forget how bad um, healthcare was under Obamacare, and frankly, I think still is. But what you, want, what you have to understand, and this is the difference between Republicans and Democrats, is the Democrats lost the midterms in 2010 because they passed Obamacare. But you know what? Obamacare is still with us. They will fall on the sword. And that's what they're doing these first two years of Biden. They will fall on the sword to transform this country fundamentally in the name of, of, of I guess, an ideology, even if it means they'll lose elections. Republicans don't do that. John McCain says, what's the New York Times editorial going to be? If I vote for the skinny repeal in the, sec in, in the Senate, which would get it to conference committee, a number of House members had stuck out their neck on repealing Obamacare. We had to pass it or, or bring it to the floor twice to get it passed. And then all of a sudden it's taken out from under us, that victory, uh, unlike the tax reform bill, by uh, these Republicans who believe they're enemies in the Washington Post. And I think that is in the book and it is palpable, that infighting that, that was a uh, that I found to be a real obstacle. Now, on a lighter note, I will tell you just a sort of my, my first um, experience in this. When you get as a new member to Congress, you go through these organizational meetings early on. And there's a great, this is what drove Boehner out. Um, Ryan was getting nicked by, by the Freedom Caucus and others who weren't happy with his leadership. 
I was sort of this <clears throat> neutral bystander at first going, okay, I got I to soak this stuff in and see what's going on. And this is a funny story. In one of the organizational meetings, um, you, you organize on the steering committees, which are the set of inside baseball, but the steering committees determine um, who's going to get which committee assignments, whether you're going to get on an A committee, which is very important, or whether you're not, um, whether the appropriator, things like whether the uh, appropriators should control the purse or whether the authorizing committee should determine the total funding, all this inside baseball stuff, but it does control power. Well, one of those um, votes would determine, I think this was the one on whether, whether or not the, the appropriators could override the authorizing committees or something to that effect. And the Freedom Caucus types, um, the rebels were saying, we're gonna vote to take away the power from the appropriators. They shouldn't have all this power. Um, and I was gonna be neutral on it to see, because I, I frankly didn't know, I'm a newcomer. And I'm sitting there and they say, it's a stand up vote only. So those standing <laughs> would vote to sort of strike a blow against leadership for the little guy, the, the, the committee members, letting the committee members choose the chairman and not the steering committees and that sort of thing. And I just stood there and I just, I, or I shouldn't say I stood there. I sat there and going, well, I'm going to wait before I stick my neck out on this one. And a member from the Arizona delegation well, that I know, you know, looked at me with a grin on his face because I was coming in as this rabble rousing radio talk show host. Right. And he looked at me and he goes, already? As though I'd gone south. I was a party animal already. And that uh, stuck in my mind and probably influenced the title of the book. And I laughed with the guy. He's a good friend. He's a solid patriot. And I ended up supporting most of the same stuff he did in my term in Congress anyway. But I just thought it was indicative of the infight. You know, you, like you'd gone south already. You've only been here a, a couple of weeks. I thought that was funny. And it was yeah. that sort of infighting really wasn't the problem. It was the infighting with the Senate. That was the big problem, as, as I recall. Well, well, it's interesting that you say that the whole idea of becoming a party animal or like coming in as a rabble rouser and then yeah. sort of being uh, tamed, as it were. And, and that's right. an accusation that's leveled. It, it seems like not just in Republicans, but there are people on the left who look at like AOC and say, hey, you know, she's uh, she's not fighting on the, or she didn't uh, vote to, no on Iron Dome funding. Yeah. You know, she's totally corrupt now. And what exactly happens when you go into Congress and you have well, AOC is actually siding with corporate America more often than not. I mean, she, you know, beneath the veneer, she's placed it pretty safe, but that's right. And it's one of the reasons that I've sort of done a, a, a um, I wouldn't say a turnabout speaking of McCain and campaign finance reform, but I do think money is the problem. Um, if you take a look at that Biden infrastructure bill, um, I know why that passed and why so many Republican senators voted for it. Every contractor in the country has their, their trade groups and lobbyists in Washington, D.C. saying, this is good for us. And if you want help the next time around, you need to do this. So I go back to an old Barry Goldwater adage that says, if you can't vote, you probably shouldn't be able to contribute. Now, I don't think it's possible in the worlds of, of Citizens United, which, which I support, by the way, because I'm a First Amendment guy, to tell individuals where they can contribute or even how much, as long as you disclose it. But I don't know how that protects uh, the American Association of let's spend more and more and more. And that's what so many of the trade groups have become on the Hill. And it's a lot easier to raise money in $10,000 increments than it is in $2,600 increments. Right. So I do think that's a huge problem. Um, and, and that's how some people are tamed. Now, 
The other aspect of that is the district you represent. I represented a swing district. Now, frankly, I wasn't going to make a career out of this, and I had no intention of staying there for 25 years just to get into leadership. Right. So I was going to vote for Obamacare replacement anyway. I was going to vote for deregulation and energy independence and, and, and for big oil in an agricultural state because I actually believed this stuff, which is kind of dangerous to these crowds. So I knew the, the, the bullseye would be on my back. But a lot of young people whose first thought when they land at, at, at um, Reagan is, how do I stay here the next 35 years, get sucked up into that, uh, which is, a, again, why I support term limits as well. But, if, but, but let me flip the angle, because that's what I try to do in the book, try to show both sides. The flip side to that is the flip side to all the squishes in the Northeast and the swing district Republicans who are moderates, right? are those in R plus 20 districts who hide political pragmatism behind principle. Now, what do I mean by that? What's your threat in an R plus 20 district? It's not in the general, it's from a primary. It's from being outed by an even more conservative candidate who says, oh, this person's gone native. These are the people that were blocking, for instance, the American Healthcare Act because it wasn't perfect enough, mm -hmm. or the Goodlot immigration reform because it wasn't perfect enough. And when we didn't get these things passed, it gave the Democrats ammunition in 2018 for their largest blowout victory in the House since, oh goodness, since Watergate, I think. And I was a victim of that, as were 40, 45 other members. Um, and that is not political principle. That's pragmatism, too. If all you're doing is attacking further and further and further and letting the perfect become the enemy of the good in order to ward off a primary, you're no different than that Northeastern liberal who sides with the Democrats because they want to get reelected. And that's the, to, to answer your question, that's the, the fine line you've got to walk when you get there. So a, a couple policy questions I wanted to ask you in there, like the Citizens United thing. And right. I, I think we're, most people are on the same page that money and politics, uh, there's, there's a lot of corruption going on there on, on both parties. Sure. And uh, it seems like, the, the whole argument that Citizens United being a, a, a free speech uh, cause, well, it, the idea of equating money and speech, it seems, it seems kind of slippery in the sense that, uh, first off, a, a company or uh, a union is not an individual. Um, and so maybe they don't have the same rights as you or I. And right. furthermore, some people have more money than others. So it becomes... Uh, almost in effect saying some people have more access to speech than others. And that feels strange. A a am I those are all, I mean, that's, those are all, you teed it up just right. I mean, those are all great questions, Duncan. And that was the, those were the questions in Citizens United. Now let me start out with a phrase you you'll at first disagree with. And, and that is no money is speech. Hmm. Money is speech because I have the right to redress my government and I have the right to support someone who agrees with my policies. The problem becomes when politicians, um, you know, money should follow good policy. Policy shouldn't follow the money. And sometimes that can happen. Now, it, it, it's got to be said, of course, corporations and trade unions can't directly contribute. So they set up these employee PACs that ostensibly are voluntary contributions from employees. And second of all, you can't bribe somebody for a vote. You can't say, well, you know, I'm going to give you $5,000 if you vote this way. That's illegal, too. So there are guardrails there. Um, I agree with, and let's get to the point that some people have more money than others. The, the crux of the issue in Citizens United was 
can you publish a book within 60 days of McCain Feingold of the limits set therein? Mm. And think about this for a moment. If you're saying that since a corporation publishes the book and a corporation can't contribute, therefore a book can't be published, you're down the slippery slope to censorship pretty quick. Sure. Um, because when people voluntarily pool their money, then they ought to be able to have that speech. Now, some people may have more money than others, but speech is speech regardless. And, and so what was happened was they, some were saying, the Solicitor General, General was arguing that you can't publish this book with, within 60 days of an election. How does that comport with the First Amendment? I don't know how it does. It po can't possibly comport with the First I can write, publish any book I want. Um, and, and here's where it gets, I think, really sticky. And that is, if you start to curtail what individuals can contribute, not political action committees, which I think ought to be curtailed, but individuals, then you actually leave it to the New York Times, which by the way, is a corporation. You leave it to the Washington Post or all these publishers to have a free reign in what is said because they can't be told not, not, not to um, write a book or write an op-ed unless you don't believe in the First Amendment. How do you tell the, the Washington Post or for that matter, a conservative New Wall Street Journal that you can't write an op-ed because that's a corporate contribution under McCain-Feingold. You can't tell them that and comport with the First Amendment. So you're going to have money in the system. And again, that's a little different because those are third-party expenditures. They're not contributions to candidates. That's, and you're not supposed to coordinate, right? So that's just somebody writing an op-ed or writing a book. You can't control that and still be consistent with the First Amendment. What you can say, however, is what I just said, and that is, how do these trade groups contribute directly to candidates? How is that possible? And I'm not saying it's illegal. What I'm saying is I think a campaign finance law that reigned that in would be upheld as opposed to reigning in what an individual could contribute. Interesting. Okay, that, that makes sense. Um, in one of the things that was interesting on that note is that in 2016 is that uh, it seems like Hillary outraised Trump and still lost. So right. in terms of elections, it's clear that like money matters, but it, it can't be the ultimate determiner, right? I think so. And, and in, you know, look, all things being equal, if you got more money, you've got a huge advantage in politics. But that doesn't countenance or, or explain wave elections. Reagan in 80, um, uh, Trump in 2016. My race in 2016, I only raised a million dollars and I won. 2018, I raised three million and lost. It goes right to your point. But, 20, but 2018 was a midterm blowout, the worst since Watergate. Yeah. I had a guy adjacent to me who um, was on Ways and Means, which means you're really raising a lot of money. And, and um, he got blown out at 8.01, polls closed at 8. My claim to fame is I was the last guy standing until almost midnight. So, you know, money isn't everything. And he had twice as much money and no talk radio baggage. So there's wave elections. Um, it doesn't matter. But... Look, you know, if you just had a term limit of 20 years, you'd replace what, a quarter or a third of the Senate? Um, these guys do get reelected and reelected and reelected all the time. And money is a big, a big difference in that. I, I think now, again, to your point, I was outraised both times by my opponent, Angie Craig, who got more money from Planned Parenthood and the human rights campaign and corporate America, especially the medical device industry in Minnesota. Um, corporations are not the friends of the GOP. Let's let's let's. Everybody needs to understand that they've not only gone woke, but they the, the 
the sort of the Mitt Romney private equity crowd has been contributing to Democrats for years. That's yes, that's definitely true. Um, they they picked Obama over McCain in 2008, et cetera. Right. Um, I'm I'm curious. What, you talk about the 2016 race uh, in Party Animal as well, and uh, this was a, a wave election. Did you, speaking honestly, did you think you were going to win? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. Um, I did, <laughs> but I will tell you, at about I don't know, it was 11 or 12. Um, I got really nervous. I remember walking down the hallway. So, every, you know, everybody had come down and a lot of the races were called, you know, Trump won the second congressional district in Minnesota that I represented by one point. I was a darn popular Duncan. I won by two. I doubled his margin. <laughs> um, but that didn't come in till one or two in the morning because uh, some machines went down. Mm. So I thought, oh my gosh, I, I lost this thing. You know, it's interesting. This whole talk radio thing, which, which in demagogic fashion um, CNN used against me and that's in the book as well but it, I used to tell people you know okay why do you think you can win the second well I've been on the radio for 25 years people know me especially conservatives I got name ID which is really what money buys right yeah. so I've got a huge advantage well then what are your liabilities I said I've been on talk radio for 25 years uh, and so I, I thought I was going to win but I was very I knew it wouldn't be a wide margin it's a swing district but uh, I got really nervous towards the end there. I, I didn't know. Uh, then I thought, oh, geez, maybe, maybe it's not going to work out. And then finally, like I say, one or two in the morning, we, we, we were declared the victor. It, you know, you mentioned that. And by the way, I was against the establishment. I mean, I had none of the establishment helping me in 2016. Totally. Yeah. And, and it seemed like even your own party was, was a little hesitant because of what you mentioned about like talk radio, yeah. which is it. it Talk radio or just radio in general, it's kind of amazing the fact that, I mean, you were on the hour, you were on the radio for 25 years and on every day for, I imagine, multiple hours a day. Like, right. it's, that's so much talk that you're producing that there's bound to be something that you can pick out of there that could cause a controversy. You know, I thought it would be policy matters. I really did. I, I was cognizant of the fact that, man, you know, look at Bork. Um, they got, you know, they go back at Robert Bork's writings. They got loads on me. And I really thought it'd be policy. Here's what he said about marijuana. Or here's what he said about this or that. And, and it, it wasn't that. It was wokeism. And I couldn't believe it. CNN latched on to the fact that I used the word slut. And so they made like this articles, like three articles ongoing that, that I was slut shaming. Now, you know, you can say that you shouldn't use the word slut. I didn't realize it was taboo until CNN called me. But of all the things that were going to affect public, it's a little bit like today. I mean, think about it. We've got our country, frankly, in my view, imploding. We've got record gas prices, the likes of which we haven't seen since the Carter era. Uh, we've got a border that is wide open. China is running roughshod in the South China Sea. Um, we literally literally have teachers that are, are indoctrinating, not teaching, uh, uh, an economy perhaps on the verge of recession, a whole host of problems. And what are these people focused on? Trans swimmers. Oh, they're focused on woke ideology. They're focused on the Green New Deal. They're focused on gun control. I've never seen any, what I call in the book, the Democrat media complex so out of touch with what I think is important, but also what Americans are thinking about right now who can't afford to go on vacation this summer. Yeah. 
So, yeah, I mean, I knew that the, the talk radio history would be um, fair game, and it ought to be fair game. I just didn't realize how, how silly it became, to be honest with you. Yeah, and, and I'm I'm curious also, do you think when you're doing, and you, you would like filled in for like Rush Limbaugh at certain points, yeah. like it, part of, I grew up, uh, you'd probably consider me on, uh, you know, left of center in certain matters, but I grew sure. up in a Republican family. And one of the things that talk radio and uh, conservative media does very well is entertaining people. And some of that involves making provocative comments. Um, I mean, how, how much as you're in your role as a you know, I got no excuse for that. I used to run around and say, look, I understand the difference between a politician and a pundit. Yeah. And there is a difference. Your idea on the radio is to provoke, provoke, provoke and, and get get say something in a provocative way to get people thinking about a more substantive issue. So in the Sandra Fluke case, yeah. um, is there really a right not to buy contraception, but to have contraception in the Constitution. You know, I, I happen to think there's a right to contraception, but I don't think there's a right to have you pay for it. And those were the issues that were going on. And so let's think about that. So what do you say? Uh, you might say something very provocative about it, or I defended Limbaugh on the Sandra Fluke thing. But the point was to get people thinking. You're supposed to be an entertainer and a pundit. And uh, in my view, I mean, I, I wanted to be, I wanted to tell people something I didn't already know. And I wanted to get to the, the root causes of some of these issues. I'd written a book on federalism already on the abortion question. So I didn't realize that the, the, the mechanics or the methodology of getting to the substance of the issue would be the issue, not the issue itself, if you follow what I'm saying. That was, that was disappointing in the extreme. And it showed me how, really how, um, partisan, I guess, a good, good enough term, but how picky Yoon and how petty and how corrupt um, places like CNN are. They have no interest in, in discussing an issue. Zip, zero, nada. They well, want to score points. I'm also curious, though, because th this is something that one of the things that seems like Trump has taught some politicians and also or maybe like revealed about politics is that when the media attacks you for something, a lot of the times supporters will rally around that politician um, and even like a guy like Bernie Sanders, who during the 2020 primary, um, Elizabeth Warren said that uh, he claimed in a private meeting that women could you know, never be president or something like that. And yeah. it wound up being his biggest fundraising day ever. Um, and this is among the Democrats. So right. it, on a certain level, it is just, it, it, isn't this like well, maybe good? It goes back public? to what I said, though. It goes back to exactly what I said. Democrats do that. They don't hang out their own people to dry. Hmm. Republicans go, I'm getting away. I'm getting out of here. I'm not touching that guy. And that's what I was up against in 2016. Once this, this, this talk radio nonsense started to come out, there was a local, uh, a local guy in, in Minnesota who was just a reprobate. He had um, worked down at the state capitol and ended up having an affair with the, with the majority leader. And then, then he got caught. Uh, doing that and was fired and sued them for gender discrimination. Just that sort of guy, right? He said my book defending the concept of states' rights and federalism and questioning why Lincoln came late to abolition. Lincoln did not issue Emancipation Proclamation until 1863. I pointed that out. His first goal was to keep the union together. It was to make sure we had an econ economy that would thrive, northern interests versus southern interests, the secession question. 
Um, he, he became an abolitionist and, and thankfully, so he undid this horrific institution, which I wrote in the book, in fact, those words, this guy says I was defending slavery. You know, okay, I'm going to run for Congress and defend slavery in an audiobook. Who does that, right? No one. But that's the demagoguery that, that was employed by all of this. So once that comes out, then the Republicans were to the heat, you know, running to the hills. That was like, oh my goodness. Democrats, to your point, would circle the wagons and, and start raising money for them. And that is, um, and I think the Trump phenomenon shows that. Um, and, and I, you know, Trump was not, was, was said things that were provocative, was, would fight back. Um, and so you had the greatest number of Republican defections led by those upright citizens at the Lincoln Project um, in any, of any Republican president in history, probably. Yeah. So there is a huge difference in the parties there. And that's in the book. Yeah. And, and one of the things that I'm curious about is, you know, in Party Animal, you go through your, your experience in 2016, your experience in Congress, this talk radio stuff. Uh, as someone who has had 25 years or in talk radio, um, do you think there is something like, you know, I think every content creator has to be aware of this phenomenon of audience capture, where... Right. There are even YouTubers yeah. out there who put out like a hundred videos and then one of them is about, you know, trans people using whatever bathroom and it gets a ton of views. And then a year from now, that's all they're talking about. In right. other words, it, it seems like the Republican do. establishment did not want a guy like Trump to win. And I'm, I'm curious if you think there is <clears throat> an element of audience capture there where in order to keep people tuned in, you got to say something wild and then people are adjust to that and you got to say something wilder and wilder, wilder. and then that is absolutely that. true and it's a great point and it's true in the media um and it's more subtle than that it's not just being howard stern and throwing bombs mm -hmm. it's you develop this persona as a conservative and you become captured by that and you can never go outside the base and say you know what obama said yesterday was actually true now in my defense i used to love to do that I had enough, I guess, conservative bona fides that, that my doubts about being conservative were never in question. But I used to have Paul Wellstone fill in for me when I was gone. Mm -hmm. I used to love to tweet the audience. I just loved it. And certainly Trump has done that with a number of things. But it all depends on what you want, too. My, my view of it, it becomes too monolithic in talk radio, quite frankly. Um, and everybody sounds the same after a while. I had a mantra. It was it was pretty simple before I went in the studio every day. And I think it served me well. And that was tell them something they don't already know and do it in a fun way. That's all I had. I was at, tell them something they don't already know. You'd be surprised how, how difficult that can be at times when every talk show host in the country is repeating the same talking points. Yeah. Just watch primetime um, cable news. So uh, I didn't mind the fact that I was going to be outside the box. In fact, I got nicked when I was running in 16 and by the way, I mean, you, you never stop learning, right? And I think I was wrong on this, but, you know, I'm a big fan of Milton Friedman. Um, I learned a lot of my economics from uh, him. Um, and uh, his, one of his big things was the drug war has failed, failed miserably. That prohibition doesn't work, whether it's guns or, or marijuana. And I, I had in Ayn Rand fashion subscribed to that view as well. Um, 
And I'd leave, you know, I'd written op-eds and I'd talk about it on the radio. Well, a lot of died in the wool Republican conservatives hated that. Well, sure enough, in 2016, when I'm running, I had one establishment backed by all the establishment in Minnesota primary me and say I, I wanted to legalize heroin. Heroin. I'd never gone down that road. Now, I did talk about legalizing marijuana and rethinking a drug war that hadn't worked. Now, I'll be honest with you. We've basically done that, and I'm having second thoughts. If you look at the haze around Denver, you can't but help have second thoughts. Maybe I was wrong on that, and I'm starting to believe I was. But the point was, I wasn't afraid to go down that road at the time, and it you know came back in the campaign because I thought it was right at the time. Uh, my data showed it, I thought it was right. But I wanted to have fun on the radio and challenge people. That's what my job was. And and it, you know, it, it makes it more difficult when you're running. That's for sure. You, you think now, because the the smoke around Denver, et cetera, this has made you reconsider things. Yeah, it has. And now the states have the, the police power in the Constitution, so I still think it should be left to the states. Um, I, I'm not in favor of DEA people overruling state law. Colorado wants to legalize pot. The DEA shouldn't start prosecuting people based on finances or money changing hands in order to circumvent that law. But states make mistakes. That's the beauty of federalism and the beauty of these laboratories of democracy. Let them try it. They've certainly tried it in Denver. And it's a bit of a mess. Um, now, it's also, you've had, you've had technical changes in the pot. The, the, the pot that these kids are smoking, tragically, is not the pot you were experimenting with in 1972. Right. This stuff is more potent. It can be laced with things. Fentanyl is now coming into the, the, the scene. So maybe as there are laws against usury, you know, unconscionable contracts, taking advantage of somebody, here's a glass of water, you're dying in the desert of thirst, I'm going to charge you $400. Can't do that. Um, maybe there ought to be laws on the, that sort of consumption too, given what's happened. There are, in our, our um, jurisprudence, there, there are nuisance laws, right? Um, you, you can't mix dynamite in your basement in a suburban setting. Is it, well, what do you mean? Libertarian says, I can do anything I want as long as I don't harm somebody. Yeah, until it blows up, then it's a little too late. Yeah. So um, I, don't, I don't think you can be a purist on everything. And, and um, that's what I found out, actually. And that's the beauty of federalism. Let the states try it. And it's a cue for other states. When you have a one-size-fits-all policy, and I don't care whether it's guns, abortion, pot, or anything, you get bad policy, and then you can't get rid of it. Uh, and I'm, I'm curious, when you were in Congress, th this seems like if you're in, you know, the federal government and you have this attitude about states' rights, th those two things uh, seem to conflict at points, no? Well, the only oath I took was to the Constitution. And I used to tell oh, yeah. that to my constituents. And the Constitution is pretty clear, the doctrine of enumerated powers. Think of it. The First Amendment says Congress shall make no law. That's how the First Amendment starts. Congress shall make no law. They laid out the powers in the first three articles of what Congress and the federal government may do. Because the, the view of the framers was, we had all the rights. It's called natural law. It's called God-given rights. We have all of our rights at birth. So we are not going to the government to petition for our rights. We are bequeathing to the government their enumerated powers. And anything that is not in that document, they can't do. And that's what this Supreme Court is rediscovering, thankfully. They're saying, okay, the Congress wants to pass a law or the president wants to sign an executive order. Great. Show me where you can do that. 
That's exactly the question that ought to be asked of every statute, every executive order. Show me where you can do Oh, a bankruptcy law. Well, bankruptcy law for the federal government is in the Constitution. I guess they can write that. But they can't write a law that says you have the right to an abortion in 50 states. It's nowhere in the Constitution. The police powers of the states are supreme. The Constitution was written to protect the colonies and the American citizens from this limit, this, this coercive body called a central government, which they were terrified of already given their experience across the pond, right? They said, okay, we're gonna give this new government the power of force, but we're gonna limit it by writing what they can do. The next follow-up question any first year political science student should ask is, okay, constitution protects me from this new, the, gov the government, they can't spy on me without a warrant. So, well, unless you're running for president, but you get the drift, they can't do these things. Who protects me from the criminal? When somebody clubs to me over the head, the Constitution says nothing. That's where the states come in, in criminal law. When you get robbed, that person gets charged by the state for murder or if it ends, ends in a death. So those police powers, and none of the colonies would assign on to this new document if, the, if, the, if those guys in Philadelphia said, oh, by the way, we're going to rewrite your criminal code. They said, no, no, no. That resides with the states, and that's why overturning Roe was exactly the right thing to do legally, constitutionally. Whether you're pro-choice or pro-life, it is a matter for the states to decide and you've got to make your case. And again, beauty of all of that is that if the states make a bad law, you can A, change it, you can petition your government there, which is a lot easier. But in the final analysis, you can vote with your feet if it really becomes that important to you. But if the, if the federal government makes a mistake in policy, where do you go? Uh, well, it's much more difficult to petition Washington. I know that from firsthand experience. And two, it's a much bigger geographical area. And really what this gets to, Duncan, is the framers were the, the, the epitome of non-elitism. They believed they didn't have all the answers. They believe, you know what, we're going to let, as, as Justice Brandeis so, so famously said, we're going to let these laboratories of democracy sort out the thorniest social issues, the thorniest issues in the country. The federal government's job was peace and security, basically. A few other things, bankruptcy laws, I mentioned, few interstate commerce issues, but not as many as they think. All those things. It really should have been an afterthought. And power corrupts absolutely, and absolute power, as I say, corrupts absolutely. Um, the, the movement towards centralization has been the most deadly thing towards freedom in my lifetime. We ought to be devolving power, not consolidating power. And the elitists that are in charge now think, no, we, we are born to govern, we know, and we're going to do everything we can. We're going to federalize elections, we're going to pack the Supreme Court, we're going to kill the filibuster to amass power. And that is very, very scary to me. Well said. Uh, I, th this is a total non sequitur, but I, I have to ask because I'm curious. Did, did you ever get to meet uh, Trump? Oh, yeah, many times, many times. Worked with him closely. Rode on Air Force One, uh, spent some time in the Rose Garden and in the Oval Office with him. Um, and, and again, that's in the book, Party Animal, but it's it's all about the disconnect. I, I firmly believe there's no question Donald Trump wants to be liked. There's just no question. These critics call it narcissism. Others like me or support him just call a guy that likes to be liked. Who doesn't? Everybody likes to be a, a superstar these days. Hence, you're, everybody's doing TikTok videos, right? They all want to be a star. They want to be liked. So his view was, look, I'm friendly to everybody. 
I, you know, he always does one of these during the debate. Somebody criticized him and he'd go, like, I really hate what you said, but I'll, I'll, I'll work with you on some other stuff if you want to work in. And he got none of that in return. And so his, his New York brashness took over and said, okay, listen, pal, you want to fight, we'll fight. But he was shocked and surprised at how at the animosity. I can tell you that, because the man I met many times was very magnanimous, very magnanimous. I'll just give you one example that's in the book. When you so, I flew on Air Force One a few times, coming back to Minnesota and campaign trips and, and stops. When I was running for the Senate, we did the same thing, and a, a lot of times. And I think this, I think I was told anyway, and I, I shouldn't do hearsay, but I was told during the Bush years that that in many cases, members of Congress riding on Air Force One were relegated to the back of the plane with the press. They have a nice seat, but you're still in the back of the plane with the press. Trump put everybody up in the cabinet room, in front of the plane, cordoned off from the press. He'd come back, sit with us the whole flight, talk. One of the nicest guys I've ever met that way. Um, and, and that was the great disconnect that I think, you know, big, bad, orange man, evil person, that I, I thought this is just the truth is not getting out. Doesn't mean you have to agree with him on everything. It just means the that the Democrat media complex was deliberately painting this this unstable, mean person when that's not what I saw. Do, do you think that, well, do you think he's going to run again? You think he will? Yeah. Um, I think he wants to, but I, I don't think it's a foregone conclusion yet. Okay. W- would, you, would you run again? I doubt it. Um, you know, I already had my 15 minutes in radio and, and – um, too many people run for that reason. I, I have no interest in running for that reason. If there was an opportunity to really make change, to be in the majority again, to get things done, um, then I'd look at it as a duty, like I looked at it the first time. But I had zero interest in going to Washington and being in a minority. Yeah, uh, just zero. Yeah, fair enough. Um, well, well, one last policy question I wanted to ask you about is climate change. Which right. is something that uh, you know Republicans get a lot of flack for, but young Republicans actually seem to care a, a lot more uh, about climate change uh, than their elders. Uh, and I'm, I think this can become a Republican issue if framed the right way. I mean, we would be if we were the biggest uh, manufacturer of green technology, we would be energy independent from all these, you know crazy Middle Eastern dictatorships, and we could export that technology to other countries around the world. And it, it would certainly help us beat China. It, it would help us maintain American supremacy for many, many years. Uh, so is this, what are your thoughts on this issue? I mean, we're talking about deregulation. Well, but- suffice it to say, I don't agree. <laughs> um, but I'm for all of the above and everybody is. The problem is, as you probably know, um, the technology isn't there yet. And when the wind isn't blowing or the sun isn't shining, it's, there's a great possibility there, but until you fix the transmission problem and the storage problem, it will never replace fossil fuels. And that's hence, we've got $6 a gallon gasoline in Minnesota and eight and $10 gasoline. That's not quite six now in Minnesota, but it got over five. But you, you can't do, what Americans um, want to do without fossil fuel technology right now. Uh, if it happens, I'm all for it. Um, high, you know, Cummins engines um, out in Ohio, 
the new CEO who happens to be a very smart woman, engineer by trade, is working on hydrogen technology. And that may be a better alternative than what we've got with wind and solar right now. But we're seeing the ramification of going uh, pell-mell into green right now. And that is, it's not a coincidence that we've got an energy crunch. You can't tell oil producers or natural gas producers, we're phasing you out and expecting them to invest in new pipelines, new transmission, new equipment. And so they're not. So where are we? We're importing oil to get it done. That's dumb. Well, we ought to be exporting it like we were during the, the administration. But I will say this, I think reasonable people can disagree on lots of things. It is the way they went about selling the green technology and climate change that is most disturbing to me. And I write about this uh, in the book, in fact, when it comes to COVID. H.L. Mencken, who was a famous journalist for the Baltimore Sun for decades, wrote about the, the, the most practical politics is based on fear. Hobgoblins of keeping the populace alarmed, most of which are imaginary. And if you want to know how the federal government was able to shut down the world's largest economy, shelter in place young people and tell them to go on TikTok for six months and, and create more mental depression than we've had in a lifetime, and, and um, hold on, I got a call there, and, and dangerously put elderly in um, COVID homes that, that were infused with COVID. It started with climate change and calling people climate deniers. First, you're a climate denier. And if you don't believe that everything we say, you know, and remember how many predictions in 1988 when Dr. Hansen was testifying and Al Gore was vice president, how many of those came true? We're supposed to be gone by 2000. We're not. Um, the, the temperatures have gone up, to be sure, about a degree and a half, but they've not gone up the way they, they said they would. They, they exaggerated this well, um, for political effect. I, I Al Gore, in fairness, is a politician and not a scientist. But right. if you look at the like the IPCC uh, with the UN, they, their predictions that they put out every few years have actually every single time been exceeded. The temperature rises, um, and it's something that I, well, the I, ice sheets the ice sheets have not melted in the Antarctic. Um, Greenland is not green anymore, and it was at one point, ironically enough. Um, the, the, we've only had temperature recordings since the mid-19th century. And so the, the, the data from these models have, have to be looked at with the scrutinizing eye. Doesn't mean they're not going to be true and you're not going to be right, but it's still mo computer models. All I, but, but that's a topic for another debate. All I'm saying is you don't scare people into, into submission to sell yourself on an issue. And when you said, wait a minute now, I've got this um, article from, you remember all the articles in the 1970s. Again, this is not evidence, it's anecdotal. But all the 1970s article on Newsweek, everybody's we're entering a new ice age. It was a consensus. It's on the cover of Newsweek in 1975, the coming ice age. The only thing different was, that's what they thought. They didn't bludgeon people over it. The difference during the Hanson-Gore era was, if you don't comport with us, you're not going to be printed in the Los Angeles Times. Los Angeles Times, one of the first newspapers to say, if you don't agree with the greenhouse gas theory, we're not going to print your letters. Then if you denied it, you were a climate denier. Now, why do you suppose anybody that's got any questions about the election of 2020 is called an election denier? Mm. It was the same modus operandi that is very toxic to public discourse that I object to. I 
I hear you. I, I, I just, I have to say, there's, um, I don't know if you read the book, uh, Black Swan, but the Nassim Taleb. I'm not. Um, he's, uh, he also wrote another book called Skin in the Game. And I think similar to the way that people who don't pay taxes or don't pay income taxes, rather, uh, they, they just can't think in the same way about raising taxes as someone who, like you or I, does sure, that. Sure. I, I think similarly, the reason why we see young Republicans tend to be more engaged on this issue is it, it's, it's frankly just hard when the predictions are saying 50 to 100 years from now is going to be the worst of it. And so I, I think it's just harder for... But how do you explain the fact that the predictions 50 years ago were saying the opposite? But the, I, I don't think that's true. I think the Newsweek article is something that comes up a lot, but that's right. It's it, it is a, a headline from a popular magazine that does right. not represent the. But they use the same terminology. Scientific consensus was a coming ice age. Well, I don't. The data was coming from scientists, and and I think it's very. Here's I guess my concern, and that is, if you say, and that the difference is not whether greenhouse gases have gone up, although in Europe. And, and in America, they've gone down a little bit uh, naturally because we're converting to some of this stuff. China's through the roof. Yeah. Um, but but it, if it's not so much that I'm against the the, the the form of energy that would, in your view, be less toxic to the planet, and it's not so much it hasn't warmed or greenhouse gases haven't gone up. I think they have. The question is one of catastrophe. The question is one is a catastrophic event. I think in a sane world, if you saw temperatures rising, just the way, remember, we went through a little ice age. I remember the 1960s, even in my youth, being much, much colder than it was in the 70s. Um, and, I, and, and the reason is we came out of a weird, weird cold spell then. 70s might have been normal, but when it got to be the 80s, it was climate change. But be that as it may, if you've got this situation where temperatures are going up, you say, okay, let's focus on infrastructure and raising levees. Let's raise highways on South Beach, at South Beach. Let's figure out a way to live with it. Instead, talk about hubris and elitism. We're going to change the climate? We're going to change the climate? Human beings are not going to change the climate. And, you know, and in fact, um, I, I think it would be very, very hard in the 20th century to draw a direct correlation between greenhouse gas emissions, especially in the post-World War II industrial era, and the temperature. I'm not saying scientifically in a model where here's what you have and this causes a greenhouse effect. I'm talking about plotting the temperature grids, plotting greenhouse gas emissions, and telling me there's a correlation. They were, they were actually, the 1930s was the hottest decade, may have, been, may have been, depending on who you believe, may have been the hottest decade in the century and yet greenhouse gas emissions were nowhere near their post-industrial World War II emissions, which skyrocketed after World War II. They did, that's true. But we were actually cold through the 70s or until we got to the 70s. Um, we were worried about an ice age. So I just think there's a little too much hubris here. But I may be wrong. You may be right. But don't call me a climate denier for asking questions. Oh, definitely. And I, I think people absolutely should ask questions. And that's, that's totally fair game. Um, yeah, I, 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 I just think that even if climate change wasn't a thing, it ultimately, even with innovations like fracking and stuff like that, it, oil on the ground is 
ultimately a finite resource. And so well, that's what Jimmy Carter said in 1977. It's true, but and, it, it, the timeline, I mean, look, people, people bet against Enron before and, and ruined, ruined their, their hedge funds because they were premature. I mean, you, you know, th- there is a question of timing here, but ultimately well, it, we sure. will have to move away from a finite resource, right? Well, look, um, let me, let me explain to you the politics of it that I object to. And that is, if I were to tell you the most successful electric car company in the world has just been removed from BlackRock's ESG investment portfolio, yeah. what would you say? I think this is more about politics than it is about science. That's what I say. Yeah. No, I think you, that's, that's a fair point. And I think that uh, a lot of people touting this issue have done themselves a lot of damage by talking about, you know, capitalism is the problem, et cetera. Well, and I, and I think it's going to happen. A lot of this transition is going to happen the same way the internal combustion engine replaced the horse and buggy. There's going to be some other method, yeah. but that's going to be solved by innovation. And, and as you say, capitalism, it's never going to be solved by government edict. Um, we're almost at an hour here. I don't want to take up any more of your time. Sure. Um, last thing before I let you go, what is next for Jason Lewis? I want to get as many people to read Party Animal as I possibly can. So I appreciate <laughs> you having me on the show. But I do really think it's important because I think you're going to find in there um, what you haven't been told. You know, your people, a lot of people right now are wondering how we got in this situation. Well, I'll explain it in there. What we did during those first two years of the Trump administration that actually let us sustain the COVID lockdowns, how the Minneapolis riots started and what it was like at Ground Zero. I was there during the Senate campaign and how we get back to more peace and prosperity. Um, and it's all in the book, plus some fun stuff. My exchange on the floor with Liz Cheney about the FISA warrants is kind of a, that sort of stuff. I, I think people will A, enjoy it, but I think it's important because I really do believe without free expression and free thought and a, a media that instead of being a state-run apparatus for one party, does their job and questions power no matter who's there. Without that, we're in, we're in this Orwellian black hole that I'm that I fear that I fear for the country over. So that's why I wrote the book. And that's what I'll be doing. But you know, I'm I'm, I'm enjoying life right now. I'm at the lake and, and having a good time and and uh, selling the book. That's about it for right now. There we go. Uh, the book is Party Animal: The Truth About President Trump, Power Politics, and the Partisan Press. Jason, thank you very much for your time. Oh, Duncan, thank you so much. And it was number one on Amazon Public Policy category last week. So. Um, We're plugging away, man. But thanks for the time. Appreciate it. Keep up the great work. All right. Take care. You bet. Thank you to Jason Lewis. And thanks for listening to Dunk Tank. I'm Duncan Gammy. See you next time.